Welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and play styles of all of the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't work, what led to better games, as well as what, well, what didn't. And we will talk about it all. In this episode, we're going to discuss economies in your D&D game, part two. In the last episode, we talked about economies in uh, zeroth, basic, first, and uh, well, that must be it, right? Zeroth, yep. basic, and first edition, and we stopped because we had already filled up an entire hour. So this episode, we are going to discuss it in second, third, fourth, and possibly fifth editions. Oh, that's um, adorable. We're, we're <laughs> well, getting through well, I, third I, if we're lucky, my man. <laughs> All right. Well, this might have a part three to this episode, then. <laughs> we'll see how that works. You uh, think? Well, I, <laughs> I'm one of your hosts, Sam Dillon, and I'm here with my esteemed co-host, Brandis Stoddard. Brandis, I will let you begin. <laughs> All right. So uh, last time we talked in pretty pretty page by page detail about the first ed dmg and we also touched on um Unearthed arcana a little bit and um the dungeoneer survival guide and so um our our conclusion uh, i think we well my conclusion you may or may have agreed with me by the end but my conclusion was that uh the purpose of wealth in first edition is to uh, clear obstacles out of the way and help you extract more wealth because it's all going to feed into XP. Right? Uh, so in, in second, as we talked about in the experience episode, um, the, the gold you collect isn't your XP value unless you're a, a thief. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, a rogue, I guess, or just get XP for that too. Right. But unless you are part of the rogue parent class, then the XP, the gold you get is not just straight XP, but it still needs to feel useful. And Second Ed doesn't address that through um, a magic item shop, as we're going to see in some later editions. Uh, it instead puts a lot of sort of presumed interest. It it presumes you're going to care about uh, building your domain starting at ninth level. And so that's where your really big uh, money sinks are. uh, Is what I think we're going to find. And so I have a variety of books in front of me that are going to either confirm or deny that idea, and we'll see how that goes for me. Um, so, um, let's see. So, so, like the first big thing in Second Ed that is going to support that idea is that for a lot of the player's handbook character classes, and to some varying extent, the character classes and class variants that get introduced in later books, um, one of your only substantial features after first level for a lot of classes, other than your Thaco progression and your spell progression, is 
picking up uh, followers sort of kind of for free at ninth level. And uh, sometimes that's based on whether or not you have built a stronghold or maybe Did you, you say get sort of. Did you say sort of for free? <laughs> sort of for free. Okay. Like sort you of. might eventually have to pay them, but there's they show up for free. You don't well, have to pay to cost, make them show it up. It costs you to build the stronghold, though, is what I was getting at. Well, well, sure. It costs you to build a stronghold, but you might receive the land sort of for free as a as a reward for being at level. I, I, that text, of course, I don't have in front of me because I'm very good at this. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't recall whether or not you have to go out and actually have a pre-existing stronghold for them to show up. Uh, do you remember? In second edition, I don't remember. Okay, so so right. Um, when a fighter attains ninth level, there it is, he can automatically attract men-at-arms. To attract the men, the fighter must have a castle or stronghold and sizable men or lands around it. So you do have to have the stronghold. It's just worded very mm. confusingly. Uh, as he claims and rules this land, soldiers journey to his domain, thereby increasing his power. Furthermore, the fighter can tax and develop these lands, gaining a steady income from them. And so many other classes have something that is similar to that. You know, Some variety or collection of followers that you pick up at what I will go along with them and call name level. You know, it's about ninth level. It might be uh, eighth, it might be tenth, but mostly it's ninth. Mm-hmm. Um, right. <laughs> and that's that's amazing that that was carried over because that's like from the earlier days. That's right. like what that was called. So yeah, anyway. <laughs> it's, it's such a such a odd uh, grammatical construction. I know, especially <laughs> when it's been stripped of all its other context right right but, well sure. and also because back then every level had an actual name <laughs> right. associated with it as like a rank so <laughs> so yeah anyway so right now i'm reading um swords against um death by uh, fritz mm-hmm. lieber and yeah. i just finished um the the story uh, thieves house in that and so it's very much a moment of Oh, that's what Gygax was talking about with some of the crap with thieves. Oh, there you go. One and done. Okay. Mm-hmm. And of course, I know that there are fans who are going to listen to this and tell me, no, no, he was referencing this other text. Yes. Uh-huh. It, it, maybe he was, but it, at very least, um, it doesn't look like he was because right. a lot of the stuff that goes on in Thieves' House just makes a lot more sense if you are sort of mashing it up with the uh, progression structure of mm-hmm. thieves that you see in uh, first and second ed. Uh, anyway, um, so and and let's be honest, he was well known for saying that some, something was a source when it was really a mashup of three or four different. Oh, sources. sure. Well, that's appendix N for you, right? Yeah, uh, right. So, uh, to to take that again from the top, the idea is that you're going to go out an adventure, and you're going to gather up a bunch of treasure, and turn that into 
both the right to the land and then a building on the land in some form or fashion that uh, is going to allow you to attract followers. Um, and then beyond that, you're going to have more people that you have to hire as you know, both a military force and a support staff. And you can play the game without going into that. If you don't have a stronghold, then you don't have followers. And that's a whole area of play that you just never touch. And mm-hmm. that's that's acceptable. But um, it's at the same point in the game when everything about your advancement uh, really sort of plateaus. So it's, a, it's, it's a soft cap, right? Your hit points stop advancing, uh, you know, in terms of hit dice, they instead become a fixed number of hit points, one, two, or three, uh, mm-hmm. for every level after that. And this is a place where, boy, is it nice to be a spellcaster, because your spellcasting abilities don't slow down or taper or soft cap in any sense. Right. They they just get more and more outlandish and badass. Uh, anyway, I'm I'm digressing back into previous episodes because fighters <laughs> do get additional attacks. You know, it's a thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> but but the point is, I forgive um, you. Yeah. If you uh, if you decide not to engage with stronghold play, then it is substantially harder to see what you do with your money. Um, now, there are optional rules for, uh, for for training as a requirement in uh, in second ed, and that could potentially be expensive, you know, depending on whether you use the optional rule in the first place. And I mean, um, it's not as punishing a cost as in first edition. Not remotely. You know, there's also just a, a whole different dynamic around experience points that doesn't factor into it strongly, but just enough. All right, so so here's another piece of the economy. Um, there's uh, on on page 34 of the DMG, uh, the second day DMG. There's table 22, player character living expenses, and I don't want to overstate how much influence has had on play because I strongly suspect that this was observed chiefly in the breach. I expect that very few tables actually paid the living expenses. But um, the, the there is a, a monthly upkeep cost uh, for four different lifestyle levels. You can live at live in squalid conditions for three gold pieces a month, which it is a little hard to square with uh, some of the things that the game says about its uh, economy and income. Um, there's poor lifestyle at five gold pieces a month. Uh, there's middle class lifestyle. Uh, and the idea of a medieval middle class is only Not barely that. acceptable <laughs> within the yeah. – within the place that second ed frames itself historically mm-hmm. um, because it does really want to frame itself 
in a very late Middle Ages place, much more consciously than earlier editions. Um, and that's a, that's a little bit of a surprising thing, but it, by choosing the late Middle Ages, well, sure, there are, there are urban populations rising and creating a, uh, a wealthy middle class. Anyway, that's 50 gold pieces per level. The idea is that um, the the things you're, I guess, committed to, are are just constantly expanding, and so to to just you know, keep yourself at this level becomes more and more expensive because I guess you have more like friends to keep happy or something i wouldn't say it's the the very best explained in in concept um and finally there's wealthy which is 200 gold pieces per, per level again that's per month so um i'd be curious to know how well this was uh observed but i know that at my tables it was not not once not a single time um, and it was also like this table was also a little piece of what was in my head when I wrote upkeep rules for my fifth edition game where they, they do have to pay upkeep and uh, having enough money to pay upkeep is a huge like driver for going out and getting more money. Um, right. anyway, um, The the text here doesn't particularly, like I said, explain why the cost would go up as you know, by your character level, but that's okay. There's also a section on draining the coffers. Um, a wide variety of taxes was was applied during the Middle Ages. Well, that sounds that sounds familiar from First Ed, um, <laughs> but there's only a few paragraphs on this and. Uh, it really, like, this is a, a major holdover of sort of jerk DMing. Like, mm-hmm. if you're charging players money for the termites eating the, like, support beams in their stronghold or in their ship, like, <laughs> man, do you still have friends after you say that at the table? I actually kind of <laughs> want to know because. I would I would face some horrible death stares at my table for yeah. you want what for termites kind of thing. Um, I mean, unless that was going to become something related to uh, an, a giant insect incursion or, right. you know what I mean? It, where, unless it's the opening to bug plot, sure. Right. right. If, it, if it's a narrative device that is that is trying to hit you in the wallet uh, to show you how devastating even the small bugs can be, and then you're going to see that there are larger ones coming, then that is a, an, an exemplary way to make your players feel like something ridiculous is happening right now. Well, <laughs> and, uh, and then realizing me, the horror of it. Let me read you this line. This is the first line of... Uh, the fourth paragraph of the section. 
always find a different, totally unexpected approach to taking excess cash from player characters. Right. The, the unexpectedness makes it worse in terms of like, how the players are going to feel about it because you're, you're kind of consciously violating narrative stakes. This wasn't established as stakes, and yeah. now it's betraying me. Oh. And it, that makes it feel like it's not, you know, something happened in the world, and so I have to pay more money. It feels like the DM's hand is in your pocket. Right. I don't like that. Yeah, it's it's uh it's definitely the more adversarial how can I remove resources from you but in an arbitrary way, right? It's an arbitrary thing. It goes on to say and this is this mitigates it slightly. Let them defeat some of your attempts to drain their coffers. Set up some of your money removing attempts to fail from the start if the player characters take some action. Uh, turn your attempts into adventures. Well, now we're talking. That's much better. Uh, <laughs> if a thief robs the player character's castle, be ready with an adventure where the character can try to track him down. Uh, in fact, he may even catch the thief, but only after the scoundrel has squandered the character's fortune. Cool. You know, cool. I mean, you know, all, okay, so now I, now I get to, um, you know... Uh, remind us of of uh, one of the things we discussed early on which was why was there such a push in third edition to to make a very rules heavy system where there was a rule for everything and the answer yeah. is because when you have a rule for everything everyone at the table knows what to expect and can look that rule up now the question about whether that part of it's fun or not is a different thing but the point is there were very um adversarial dms there were jerks there were people who weren't jerks but who thought well this is what it's telling me to do so that's what i'm doing and not realizing that it wasn't fun or that there is actually another way or that you don't have to do it exactly the way that it says it you know it's you know yeah there there were a lot of bad dms out there you know well, and actually, right. I'm, and... Gonna total, I'm gonna totally tangent us right now because with the huge influx of fifth edition players, I hope, I sincerely hope that enough new DMs are are sort of being brought into the fold that know that you aren't supposed to be adversarial, or you aren't supposed to be adversarial if that's not what your party finds fun, and right. also that the majority of people do not find that fun. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a really good point. I think that, um, you know, with, with Twitter as the very, mm, the, the, the very specific slice of the gaming community that it is, a lot of the conversation around, uh, DMing as a thing and, and what it means for a game to even have a, a GM as opposed to GMless gaming, uh, is coming out of that adversarial stance, mm -hmm. uh, and it, it assumes that adversarial GMing is what GMing is, uh, even though uh, that's really been waning sharply since 
1989. I mean, b- yeah. because second ed. It, while this line is still in here, second ed represents a step back from it as a model, uh, the, the adversarial model, right? Um, I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, like I said, I knew that was going to tangent a little bit. Um, that's I think fine. That's, it's, it's a, a it's a topic that interests me for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. But let's let's continue. <laughs> uh, but, well, and and so a couple of pages later, we get to you know the classic uh, constant money sink of of the whole party, which is the wizard mm-hmm. spellbook. Right. I mean, so I can't be objective about this rule and this kind of rule. I love it too much to even like judge what it does to play. I love the fact that uh, after a certain level in the game, uh, and that level is probably like sixth or seventh uh, of any edition of the game where spellbooks involve sinking money to scribe spells, uh, after a certain point in the game, um, the most expensive item that the party owns is the wizard spellbook. Right. That to me is so narratively appropriate to like books in the Middle the Ages, power. books of power, uh, any item of power, you know, fantasy academia. It, it all points in the same <laughs> direction so well that I love it. I just love it. I it makes me love playing wizards. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, there are people who hate it. I don't understand it. I love it. Um, like I, I love that they need to have all this money to perform, you know, w- weird, horrible experiments that make the windows of their towers uh, flare with unholy light, and it's great. I'm just, I love wizards, man. Um, but uh, you know, for the materials and their preparation, the wizard. Uh, must play must pay fifty gold pieces per page. Traveling spell books, which are even more co- compact, cost one hundred gold pieces per page. Um, and then, how many pages are in a spell book? It's a whole thing. Um, mm-hmm. We get into spell book capacities and uh, the, the capacities of the, the, the space cost for spells of each level. Um, it's just great, like. Um, you know, puts me in mind of uh, everyone from uh, Raceland Majer and Fistandantilus all the way through Caleb Widogast. I'm so here for it. Um, so let's see. So, so right then we get into spell research. I mean, we've we've done spell research before in um, the, the Twelve Days of Edition Wars, and. Uh, it, this is the the ultra boiled down version. Um, you know, uh, but it, it's essentially all the things that we saw before, um, and then uh, sometime later on in here, right? So so here we come to rogue um, per gold piece value of treasure earned. It's two XP per gold piece earned, and 
I mean, I assume that's of their personal share, but I can't prove that on the basis of this textual fast. Uh, I, it feels like their personal share, and I'm that's how we played it. But I think we didn't play with table thirty-four at all, but that's okay. Yeah. Well, um, I think there were some some people in my group at the time who really wanted to retain gold for XP. So yeah, the 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 uh, the, the compromise was <laughs> yeah, uh, let it work for some. Um. So. In a minute here, I'm going to find the thing I'm looking for. Yada, yada, yada. <laughs> Morale checks. Um, so another significant uh, early game money sink, uh, and possibly late game, but especially early game, is going to be raising the dead. Uh, Paying someone to cast spells for you is presented as something you are pretty likely to do in second ed, uh, like all the way down to the art in the book, like conceptually pushing it as something you might want to do. Um, there's a a picture that is just seared into my memory, um, where you have you know two fighter dudes carrying a third fighter dude onto the steps of a temple and the, the priest has come out of the, the doors of the temple and is you know, gesturing to them grandly. And it's obvious wait, that wait, what's going to happen what is that you on? Uh, I, I haven't found it. I, I don't need oh. to find it. I know exactly what it looks like. Um, <laughs> Cause it, I'm looking for it. <laughs> I'm, I'm not joking. It's seared into my memory. I, I don't even remember which book it's in. It's either in the DMG or the, the player's handbook. But um, so continue your description of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Okay. So it's page one sixteen of the second ed DMG. Oh, so three fighter dudes carrying a fourth fighter dude. My mistake. Um, <laughs> and so the priest has come out of the the door of the temple and he's gesturing grandly. And um, our, our fighter dudes here are uh, pretty clearly. Um, Romans, like that's a Roman centurion's crested helm. Sure, I, I guess this could be a Roman one, and like the the whole architecture is is Roman. But uh, it's I gotta grab my other DMG. The revised one is not on that page. It's really clear that is that what's going to happen next in this scene is that the fighters are going to have their fourth fighter buddy. Uh, either healed of his mortal wound or raised from the dead. And our lead fighter dude is going to get that either by money or putting that sword tip right up to our priest's throat until he does what he wants. <laughs> like okay, that, that is, that is, that is big energy in that scene. Yeah. Um, but it, I think it, I think all of the art in the, uh, the second ed books is, is trying to sell that kind of world and I, I I adore it, even if it is not always immediately easy to see the path between the the mechanics and commentary on the page and how you get to a scene like that in actual play. Mm-hmm. 
because clearly these four fighter dudes have not come up with a balanced party. Right? Right. <laughs> if right. they had a balanced party, maybe they wouldn't need to go to the uh, priests in this temple who um, don't seem especially sympathetic right off. Um, so... Yeah. The sad thing is, I don't think the 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 revised green cover. The revised edition does not have that picture. That that is a crime. That is a crime. It is because um, I have both. Because you know, because I have both. It, yeah. And, uh, yeah, right on page 116 of the original, but, uh, the, I also, you know, when they re, when they reissued those, the, the green cover, those are the reissues of the, of the revised black cover. <laughs> mm, yep. yep. Uh, and it looks like that is not in here. So this is uh, a piece of, uh, artwork by, um, David Dorman, uh, Dorman, based on the signature in the corner. And I mean, it's definitely in my like top eight favorite pieces in this book, but all of those favorite pieces are placed at number one. So it's a little awkward for actually ranking them. They're just so great. I I love a lot of the, the big color pieces in this book. Um, so, um, the, the next big thing I want to cover from the DMG and strange as it may be, we're, we're both in the middle of the book and getting close to the end of what I want to cover for uh, economics uh, okay. is at the beginning of chapter 10, um, like they, they're just going to like express a lot of ideas right in the, the section headers who needs money forms of treasure placement of treasure. Who's got the treasure? Uh, planned and random encounter treasures, treasure tables, maintaining balance, two little treasure, Monty Hall campaigns. Um, Mm -hmm. And then we get into researching magical items and the nature of magical fabrication. And uh, there's, there's a whole section in here on, you know, getting to create magic items as a PC. Uh, which you know places this as a very debatable stepping stone uh, toward the magic item creation system of third, but it has so little in common with it that I think calling it a stepping stone is dubious at best. <laughs> what you can say is uh, they at least discovered that there was player interest in being able to do that thing, but right. not too much more than that. Um, but in this in this section, like there's there's going to be um, a a series of um, of premises on it, on what the world is like and what that tells us about treasure in the world. Um, you know, premise one: Long ago, the world was a wealthier place uh, since all this money has been taken out of circulation. Premise two. Once the world was more culturally advanced, since only an organized society can control things like minting on a large scale. And 
I mean, that that's really, really speaking to the um, like Dark Ages or Byzantine feel of Second Ed that I think I've touched on in previous editions. Um, and premise three, the world has fallen into a Dark Age. Yeah, go on. Um, since <laughs> now, these same hordes are eagerly sought after by adventurers, and there are a few governments able to mint such amounts of coinage. Uh, yeah, it really it really gives a strong impression of the default assumption, right? Um, and so it's it's fascinating that they bring up the ability to mint coinage in talking about economics because it does come up so rarely in discussions of game economies, even on a, on a narrative level of of economy. Um, but uh, my wife has a, a close friend who is an economist, and uh, the, the two of them have had some great in-depth discu- discussions of like world building and economy, and what that means both at at the highest narrative level, and then drilling down to the player experience level, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, the economist says, where are the mints and what are they doing? And right. So and who, who owns them? <laughs> and so like, there, there's some, some really interesting valid um, points being made here about pay attention to your world building. That is your economy. And, and I like that. Um, even as, you know, this coinage is out of circulation only sort of means something, you know, generation over generation. But also it's interesting that the, these three premises are meant as the sort of default starting place, you know, cause, cause the next thing that it says is just for those following along from these premises, the DM begins to create a background for his campaign world. Here are some possibilities, and it gives you some things. But so, if that's if that's the default assumption, it's interesting that uh, what what you were saying earlier about oh well, then there's this idea of um, you know ha- uh, living expenses, right? Well, how do you have living expenses that are so high if coins aren't even in existence right now like uh, the, all the coins are just what has already been in existence and we're just trading them around right and you know i'd love to see a game that uh acknowledged sort of a uh, a post diocletian uh you know currency has been devalued by just you know, reduction in uh purity and and in uh over minting so all of your wealth is in kind. Um, your your two hundred gold pieces per level, that's paid in grain and cattle and iron, not not coin. Like the coin to do that doesn't exist anywhere. Sorry. Um, and so, like I said, there's there's whole sections on who's got the treasure and you know how uh, unintelligent and intelligent creatures you know, handle treasure differently and uh, might wield it productively. 
Um, but um, because we are going to be talking about magic item creation in third, I want to say a few more words about magical fabrication. Um, sure. There, there are two methods here, uh, both both of which, and also the, the blended uh, option that it, it presents, both of which could be really expensive in coin, but even that's sort of open to question unless you have sort of a, a curiosity shop place that doesn't sell magic items but sells things that could become magic items with a little TLC. Um, by the way, you should do this. It's awesome. That's that's an awesome idea. I'm handing you for free right here in this podcast, <laughs> y'all. Just um, so uh, the the practical method uh, is sort of saying um, it's I guess leaning into you know ideas of magical sympathy. Um, you know, uh, a potion of climbing might require the hair of a climbing creature such as a giant spider or the legs of a giant insect. Um, and that idea of, you know, your magic item creation is harvesting creature parts um, is going to be alive and well uh, in, you know, a lot of crafting systems all the way through 5th edition. Um, right. One of these days we'll do a series on crafting systems like drilling all the way down to crafting systems in tabletop games. And we will discover uh, how little meat is on them bones, but that's okay. <laughs> um, we might need several episodes for that. I mean, Lord knows getting me to stop talking about it is a Herculean task in itself. Um, so the fantastical approach um uh, takes sort of a more mythic stance. Uh, it sounds much more like um, how the, the dwarves fashioned um, various magical goods for the Aesir and the Vanir. Um, and and like, it's sort of riffing on the, the song lyrics of um, Scarborough Fair. You mean because of the sort of folklorish uh, aspect yeah. of it? Tell him to make me a cambric shirt without no seam nor, nor needlework. Well, it's impossible. The point is that it's impossible. You've presented an impossible task that has to be you know, resolved through the friction of that impossibility. Um, for the rope of climbing, the player might solve it by finding a magical sheep whose wool is so thick it needs no spinning. Uh, this he could form into a rope, casting spells to give uh, a spider a voice so he can say a few words over the cord. Uh, because the the fundamental riddle is uh, thus to make the rope, of the rope of climbing, the DM could require a skein of unspun yarn, the voice of a spider, and the courage of a daring thief. Well, you, you probably can't buy too many of those, you know, at your local magic item Costco. Right. And... You know, it gets into some of the mythic roots that they're drawing from here. The twelve labor, labors of Hercules, um, the uh, the tasks of uh, Killick from uh, the Mabinogian, that kind of thing, uh, to bind the Fenris Wolf of Norse mythology, etc. 
the thing is that um, this also requires some work beforehand by the DM. Absolutely. Yeah. Because you're not you're not just going to say, oh, well, the, uh, the my player just decided they want to create something, and you're going to have these at, at the forefront of your mind. Oh, I'm going to give them three impossible ingredients, and then it's up to them to figure out how to get them. But that means that the DM has to seed those ideas and legends into the background of their setting, right? If if there is a, a sheep that has a wool that is so thick and brilliant that it doesn't have to be spun, there's probably a legend about that that provides that information. Right. And if the DM is not ready to have a place where the characters can learn that, well, then you're really just throwing up a roadblock. You're not actually making a fantastical thing. Um, maybe. Um, it sort of depends on all the different little pieces of implementation, right? Sure. Like if you already sure. have a stronghold, Absolutely. if you already have a stronghold where people come to trade rumors, then it's the easiest thing in the world to have someone trade rumors. Um, maybe there's a library. I mean, I'd never implement a setting without libraries, so I assume no one else would. No, no, but I, I mean in terms of the, the DM has to have some idea in their mind about what the players are going to learn in that library. Uh, yeah, but I don't know. The player poses the question by saying, I want to make this thing. And then they do need to be willing to give the GM, you know, anywhere from five minutes to the time between sessions to come up with, (laughs) here's the questions you now need to answer. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Like, th- yeah. there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of potential fun in that sort of posing questions back and forth at each other mm-hmm. until uh, someone starts producing, you know, exciting answers. Um, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, it's a little mini game, right? Yeah. It's a it's a it's a treasure hunt in the form of information gathering. Yeah, um, and, but, and I think... But everybody has to be on board, though, I guess is what I'm saying. For sure. Um, I think the the danger of it is just that you're choosing between either questing for magic items or questing for a piece of magic item that you need to then go on more adventures to get the other pieces. Guys, it's just a rope of climbing. Like, yeah. You really might just find one of those as part of the treasure hoard of <laughs> the thing you went to do to get the piece. I don't know. Um, it That's my fundamental problem with um, I want to make this thing, okay, go on three different adventures for it. Right? Because, mm-hmm. well, why don't I just go on one adventure and see if I get the thing? Or then just be happy with what I get instead. It's fine. Um, I, I actually like this section. Ultimately, I do too. Uh, I just think that um, I think it pushes GMs to be a little too. Um, and one more thing mm-hmm. about um, roadblocks to having the magic item. That that's my only issue with it. Like ultimately, I'm fine with a system that. Where the player says, I want this thing, what's it going to cost me? And the the DM 
you know, frames, you know, a couple of different vectors of cost, which might be connected by and, or, or but. And that's mm-hmm. fine. Those are all good. Um, uh, yeah. Okay, so... Uh, but... So I have a counterpoint to that, though. Okay, on sure. the other hand, on the other hand, it's also suggesting creativity in a way that it could be pulled off in a much less adversarial way. Sure. And as we said, you know, that's kind of a step forward from previous suggestions. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, so I, I I still think they're taking baby steps forward, but I get what you're saying. No, I, I agree with that. I, I think that um, this this does have a more collaborative tone than uh, earlier books. I, I definitely agree with that. Um, so because it's something we discussed last time, uh, I want to talk about uh, Chapter 12, NPCs. Um, the section that starts with the assassin, the spy, and the sage. Uh, that would be a, an amazing, amazing Lake novel, by the way. Uh, I just want you to know, <laughs> I would read that book. Yeah. Uh, because that's sort of his oeuvre. Um, mm. But here again, the idea is that you can uh, turn all of this money that you've gathered into um, – different ways of clearing away problems that you don't want to handle yourself through, you know, uh, legwork or wet work. Um, is there, you know, a person who is, you know, on your case and you hate him? Well, you hire an assassin. Uh, is there a question that is not ancient lore uh, that you, want to answer or an enemy that you don't want dead, but want discredited while well, a spy uh, is there a question or a riddle that needs an answer while well, a sage. And these are going to be um, probably spectacularly expensive mm-hmm. and that's fine. That's, that's all to the good. Um, and then soldiers, because my premise was that you were using this to build a domain and soldiers, uh, military occupations, <laughs> Um, I'm just going to say the phrase military occupation is a sufficiently ambiguous one that it needs to be jobs. That's fine. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. They're both expensive, just they mean different things. So there's a bunch of different like jobs in an army here. Uh, archer, artillerist, um, mounted bowman. They really underprice that they're mounted bowman. <laughs> Uh, Edward M. Lutwak is not going to be happy about the pricing of that mounted bowman. That's all I'm going to say. Some people have not read their Byzantine history, and it shows. Um, and, and so on through various other uh, roles and tech axioms. Um, that's all very cool. Um, and here we get several pages on it, and it's kind of great. Um, it's kind of weird. I'm not going to lie. It's kind of, uh, it's kind of a hard right turn from most of what you see in the rest of the book because it 
just presumes like uh, land is the main thing of value, and that is only so well supported in the rest of the text. But it is pretty cool. Um, it's it's interesting. Um, all right, NPC spell costs. So, like I was saying about getting NPCs cast spells for you, there's a table, <laughs> and the costs are phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, though in many cases it's easy to understand why. Uh, permanency, mm-hmm. twenty thousand gold pieces. Uh, some exceptional service will also be required of the character. Yeah, they're they're selling you a point of constitution. Like, of course, it's yeah. expensive. Right, and right. you'll pay them and call it a bargain because it's not your constitution. Well, and I mean, when you look at the spells that have those those little notations, the asterisks that say, "Oh, well, you know, there is a payment or service required for this." Uh, those are those are the ones you would expect, though, right? Yeah, for uh, sure. So, I mean, it is extremely expensive. But remember, remember what we talked about in terms of, uh, you know, there's something that goes hand in hand with this economy that we've kind of been skirting around. And that is that idea that we talked about when we, when we were looking at the high level campaigns book that spelled out the demographics of how many PCs of a certain power level or how many people of a certain power level would be active at any given time or within any size population yeah, I mean, how many people could actually cast these spells for you? Right. You know, so of course, for sure. of course, it's going to be expensive um, because there just aren't there are not people there are not that many people who even have the power to do this. And I mean, really, who are you that you're they're going to do it for you, right? Yeah. Um, as a a quick note of interest, um, the table talks about uh, raised dead as. Uh, the spell is normally only cast for those of similar faith or belief, even that a payment or service may be required, but there isn't a default expensive component for raised dead. Uh, right. And I bring but that up because it's going to change in later editions. Right. Yeah. Note, note also that spells like atonement and bless also have that, right? Right. Uh, They're basically leaving that up to the, the temple or shrine where you're getting the assistance. Right. I, I, my point is just that um, getting your your dead party members brought back is much more of a necessary expense than getting somebody to cast bless for you, oh, which of course, of you course. can't yes. use in the battle anyway because you, the duration isn't. Never mind. Right. Not important. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then resurrection. The material component is. The priest's holy symbol and some holy water. Okay, but you know, as with uh, as with raised dead, um, you're just not getting this spell at all. Um, like it isn't listed on this table for some reason, but um, it, it's hard to get because it's so high level. Uh, Resurrection's not listed, yeah, but reincarnation is. Thanks. Like, I know, right? <laughs> you could cool. make your system shock roll. <laughs> right. A system shock roll followed by, I'm a what? Yeah. I'm a honey badger. Cool. Great. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> can I 
Can I just? You could have just said, "I can't keep playing my character. It's fine." <laughs> uh, um, anyway, th- that's that's just a thing. Um, and also, uh, paying your your NPCs extra, you know, paying cash donatives, is a really important way to influence their morale score. If you're doing a lot of things with NPCs, you're gonna need the morale score. There's a lot of rules about it, like a lot of rules, and so that's another important place for your money to go is just paying bonuses and bounties, and and that's pretty cool um, because it if you listen to history podcasts or about Roman Byzantium, that's where a lot of the money went, like paying the army a lot extra so they'll just not go into revolt for having to mm-hmm. live the military lifestyle of the time. Right. So I think that about taps me out for this book. Um, like the, the treasure table, treasure table structure is changed in what the exact numbers are and what each hoard is going to hold. But in the in the fundamentals of what's going on, it's the same. Um, it's a percent chance to have each element in it, and then you, you, you roll those percent chances. It's there or it isn't, and you wind up with some fantastic amount of wealth. Um, right. Same as it was before. It, right, and like we said at the time, that that basic approach isn't going anywhere. It's going to it's going to run all the way through fifth, with mm-hmm. a major deviation for fourth edition. Right, and it is interesting that these treasures have XP values, but not uh, gold piece values. The game doesn't do a great job of telling you what the XP values are here for. I'm not sure I ever uh, knew at the time I was running second ed what the XP values were even on the table for. Okay, so so that XP value is the number of experience points a character gets for making an item. Oh, I get paid experience for making an item? That's... <laughs> right. Oh, sure. Right, which is kind of funny after that whole section about making it hard for them to make items. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right, I mean, it's uh, there's an interplay there that is... Uh, there's, there's, a, there's an idea missing there uh, in terms of how the book tells you how to adjudicate the intersection of those two ideas. Right, just, and that's fine. That. It's fine. Yeah, that's fine. All right, so that gets us to the end of the second ed DMG. Um, a lot of what I want to say about high-level campaigns we have covered in excruciating detail. Uh, so just assume that I pull a Stan Lee, put an editor's note in the corner of the panel, and... <laughs> say we covered this before, but um, it, this book is going to largely dig into uh, like true Dwemers and making spells that way, creating magic items. Um, it doesn't do as many more things for sort of expanded domain level play as I think you could plausibly expect. And of course, spells and magic has an awfully lot more about uh, spell creation. Uh, so so I'm going to kind of cruise past that one, unless you had more you wanted to say about it, Sam. 
Nope, I think we can move on. I think we can move on. So, so the castle guide is uh, the other big uh, statement about strongholds and stronghold management. Until you get to, you know, my favorite D and D setting ever published, which of course I'm going to talk about. Lord, <laughs> Lord knows I would not end this episode without saying a few words about it. So, um, the castle guide um, wants to talk about feudal society first, and. Uh, there's a lot of implied world building going on here that maybe they could stand to uh, frame a few more things as uh, this is one way a society can be rather than this is the default society. But that's all right, I guess. I mean, uh, yeah, but I, see, I, I think this a lot uh, about uh, a lot of the, the second edition, the, the initial second edition products uh, that were core, you know, what we would call core products. In other words, non-setting products. They are kind of trying to provide a default setting without providing a default setting, right? And so right, that, sure. it, that that matches exactly what this book is trying to do. This book is giving you an idea of here's what feudal society was and that's when castles arose you know whatever right and so here's your default setting if you're going to use a bunch of castles but uh, i get what you're saying but it, it makes sense to me that they did that that way um whether whether there were weren't better alternatives is another story of course right um so so all that all, all the you know lines about uh how to drain money from the players' coffers. Well, that gets broken down into individual taxes here. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the seasonal taxes, the market taxes, the inheritance taxes, the tolls, uh, luxury taxes, consumption taxes, nobility taxes. It's a lot of taxes, y'all. Yeah, but it depends oh, on you know your social status. Right. It's just that a lot of these taxes are in values small enough that by the time it's a concern – uh, that amount of money is not meaningful for you anymore. Like mm -hmm. even paying for a simple dwelling at one, two, or six copper pieces. Like the good world building may be dubious gameplay. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, castle ten gold pieces. By the time you have a castle to worry about, I'm gonna bet ten gold pieces is not your problem. <laughs> On the other hand, if you don't have any money and you have to pay a one copper piece market tax, uh, that might cause problems for you. <laughs> yes, that's fair. Um, and basically, the, like this section is fine, but very kind of bureaucracy driven. And I don't know that players are going to enjoy just the Here's another copper piece. I'm I'm now marking down the denomination I care about least um, on my character sheet. Like, it's hard to make that feel okay. And this this isn't really going for uh, engaging gameplay as much as like uh, verisimilitude. And mm -hmm. eh, it's okay. 
And, uh, and honestly, you know, this is a supplement where I read it and uh, a couple of things I pulled out and then I basically ignored the first, you know, third of this book. Right. Right. Like the sword tax. Every weapon in the kingdom is taxed, both as a means of making money and as a means of keeping an eye on the relative power of arms around the kingdom. Uh, okay, but in the fantastical settings that I played in, that didn't really make sense, you know? <laughs> so ignored, right? Right, And then yeah. I would move to the next thing, and I would make a decision about whether to ignore that, and then I would move to the next thing. And, and because this is trying to present such a very specific feudal way of making things in your world it it, it, it is a lot of it falls flat for me um, yep. but i understand why they put it in yep anyway uh we get into castle construction that's that's the meat of the book it's what it's here mm-hmm. to talk to you about and then there are multipliers for all these different factors multipliers for terrain multipliers for climate multipliers for geography just just all kinds of stuff um ground cover uh, uh, available workforce, and so yeah, you could be uh, pretty readily paying uh, ten times as much for your your castle as its you know baseline design spec would have called for. So mm-hmm. make your choices, but th- there are things that uh, are, are cost decreasers. Also, I don't want to give a wrong impression there, um, mm-hmm. and. You, you definitely get into sort of uh, paying for every stretch of wall. Um, the, the castle modules table is here to add up construction time and uh, like gold cost and everything on every bit and bob in that stronghold. So like, this is the kind of content, and I think we've, we've all seen this in – any game that brings up this kind of thing, uh, where there's a major group asset, you're going to get one or at most two players who take on the task of managing it and mm-hmm. crunching the numbers on it and everything. And all the time at the table that eats up is focus time for them, where the other players are probably pretty disengaged. Um, it's really hard to make. Uh, that kind of spreadsheet questing, uh, engaging content for a a party of more than about two. It's really hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, it's it's something that uh, Birthright really set out to address in its a productive ways that I want to talk about in a minute because, of course. When I'm talking about my favorite setting, as I've been threatening to do all all episode, I'm talking about birthright. <laughs> uh, well, you're in luck because I know nothing, next to nothing, about birthright. So I, I that's awesome. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm seriously considering sending you my spare box set uh, <laughs> because I love it that much. Uh, I I have a spare box set that I literally don't know why I own. I don't remember where I got it. And I'm very confused. (laughs) Because why not have two of your favorite thing? Because I'm pretty sure I didn't buy it. 
I don't know where it came from, Sam. It just materialized like my wishes coming into being. This is it not found normal. It way to someone with a pure heart. <laughs> or, or a second best effort, you know, me. Uh, so to answer me this. Uh, so, you know, in, in looking at this castle book, uh, you're, you're saying that it creates certain problems uh, that Birthright tried to solve. Let, let's let's right. move forward to that because I'm I'm interested in hearing that that perspective. Okay, so because because well, hold on. So as much as I I complain about the first third of this book and say ah you know I just sort of looked and went I actually love this book because yeah. that whole castle construction. Uh, you know, putting things together and figuring out every square foot of wall and how much it's going to cost and where is it in a jungle or a swamp or on a plane. And like, I love that stuff. That's a little mini game for me and it makes my heart sing, but I would never use it in my game. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And there's nothing wrong with loving that mini game. There's nothing in the world wrong with loving that mini game. Do you play that mini game at the table during a session? No, no, of course, and that's that's why I said I would never I would never throw it into my game and expect my players to to also embrace it as as I would. Right, right. So, so you see how quickly that would melt down as soon as the answer to that question toggled to yes. Don't don't do that. That's that's a disaster. Um, so 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 the conceit of birthright is that uh, all of the characters or as many characters as want to be, are uh, regents. They control some major asset, which might be uh, a, a, a series of temples that form a sect of a religion. It might be a series of guild holdings that form a business. It might be a province or a kingdom. Um, it might be, you know, the magical holdings of a wizard that fuel their extra special spells uh, because they do get extra special spells that are just the bee's knees. Uh, and so the thing that sets it apart is that there is a personal piece of the game for every player and a reason for them to tune in and care during um the spreadsheet questing portion of the the session, right? Uh, because it is not all um, held collectively by the party, in theory at least, uh, you can't like just have one player manage everything. Now, <laughs> did some groups probably do that in practice because uh, one person at the table is a CPA and everyone else at the table is not yes absolutely come on Uh, that's totally a thing um but uh they're at least trying to not do that which it helps right um but you know not many games care as much about the economy as uh, as birthright does because um you got to fund this these holdings and these kingdoms and their engines for taxation as well as uh, phenomenal costs because you have to defend them in various ways. So uh, rather than uh, always talking in thousands of gold pieces, they instead have uh, 
2,000 gold pieces is one gold bar, or GB. Um, and so you're back to dealing with very manageable numbers. Um, and, you know, five gold bars, that's, that's pretty real money in, in birthright. It's not a phenomenal amount of money, but it, it's pretty real. Um, you can, you know, hire an army from scratch for that, and that's, that's pretty good. Um, a huge part of the game is about uh, the politics of uh, which other regions you're in conflict with and which other kingdoms you're in conflict with, uh, both regions that have holdings in your own lands, because you might not be the only business in that province, and um, you're going to butt heads because the game makes absolutely sure that you do. Um, like, this is one of the only D&D-based games that strongly lends itself to uh, open PvP. Uh, it was generally not played for open PvP in a gaming group at a table, but uh, there uh, were and absolutely still are uh, birthright-based uh, uh play-by-post or play-by-email groups that are using the engine there to drive, you know, 40 or 50 player games where uh, you just have a GM resolving their actions against each other. You know, it's diplomacy with a lot more rules and a lot more economics. That's really cool. That's really cool. And if you have a staff of GMs, so that they can run adventures for these regents that want to go on adventures, like that's phenomenal. Like it's a it's a, a whole ton of work, but it's the only for the only time within D anD D that has been really readily supported. There are times you can make D anD D do that if you care, but this is the one that centers the idea. Um, and so what you have is you know, two fundamental currencies. You have your, your gold currency and your Regency point currency. Uh, Regency points are, are not actual money. They're your mystical influence over you know, your lands and reality and, and so on because you're a you know, ruler with authority. Um, I, I don't want to get too deep into all the different things about that but uh, a lot of the game is resolved by uh, by dice rolls, and there's a bidding system uh, where you can uh, just bid more Regency points and uh, gold bars to like thumb the scales of that die roll. It's just like one per one, I think of uh, Regency points or gold bars to improve your role. But it's a contested role against another region. So that's a bidding war that can go nuts if you let it. And that's great. Um, And so there's all these different actions that you're going to want to take, and there's all these limits on how many actions you can take in a a single um, season. Mm. right? So the, the three domain actions in a in a season of play, four seasons in a year, 
and so much to want that you definitely have the option of turning gold you find on an adventure into gold bars. That That's the thing you can do. But the game doesn't primarily assume that's happening. Um, I mean, you absolutely can have a, you know, a dungeon crawling birthright game, but uh, <laughs> the, the designers might mm-hmm. give you a little bit of side eye over that and just think you might should be playing a different setting to do that. Um, anyway, uh, the I mean, very much the economic assumption in. Uh, in birthright is that you are spending more money to gain more money or defend your ability to keep making the money you have. Um, and you want to do that for the essentially, you know, cyclical, uh, reason, right? Uh, you started doing the things you want to keep doing the thing because there's an ultimate benefit to it though. Right. You don't, do you cycle forever or do you cycle towards a goal? Um, I mean, you cycle toward the goal of having the best kingdom and holdings that you can manage for as long as you play the game. Uh, In the same way that you, I guess, would ask, uh, well, what's the purpose of all this XP if it just, if all it does is get you more levels? Well, yeah. Like, like, yeah. You're gaining the right to keep playing the character at you know, higher against, against bigger challenges. You're, you're gaining the right to keep, you know, playing this holding or kingdom uh, against bigger challenges. That's right. it. But I guess what I'm saying is the, the game of keeping your holdings and keeping your, what did you call them? The, the points that are, what is it? Yeah, regency points. Regency points. Keeping those at, at the appropriate level and all that. That is the game. It's it's not separate from it's not uh that's not a side game that you're doing while you're also out doing regular D D, you know, combating the dragon and you know clearing so, out the, the, the abandoned tomb, unless the point of that is to gather more resources for your kingdom. Well, so, so yes and no. Um, there is a major point of intersection between um, character power in an adventuring sense and domain power, and that is in your bloodline. So you have this magical bloodline that is why you're able to gain regency points and why you have sort of a, a divine right to rule. It's because you have the you know uh, God-touched blood and you know, thousands of people all across the, the continent have this God touched blood. Um, and, um, so your bloodline, uh, has both a numerical strength score and a, uh, descriptive strength value. Uh, and that determines the, the kinds of powers and such that you can get. And, um, uh, those those powers are you know, personal scale useful, right? Uh, they're going to be useful you know, on adventures primarily. Some of them are also going to be useful in diplomatic encounters when you've you know 
set down the you know d20 of the espionage role and you've zoomed into the actual scene mm-hmm. um, so so yeah um, th- that is that's sort of how that all plugs together into a thing you could do um, but I, I I started in Forgotten Realms when I started in D&D uh, because Birthright wasn't out yet but as soon as I got my hands on Birthright uh, I was hooked man uh, I just I love that setting so much uh, because it it cares about um, politics and alternative solutions to problems and verisimilitude as not a lot of other D&D settings have frankly um and it's a, a setting that could potentially be very low action if mm-hmm. that's how everyone chooses to play it. Um, and that that can be good or bad, but you don't have to play it that way, so it's a choice. And I just right. think it's cool that it is a D&D that is doing something so unlike uh, what we talk about as the standard of D&D. All right. Uh, well, I, I, I think that um, that is a great roundabout way to end the episode uh, about economies. And we'll probably come back and revisit some of this as we talk in the next episode about third edition economics and, and maybe fourth and fifth. We'll see. We'll see what happens. <laughs> um, Brandis, where can people find you on the Internet? So my personal blog is uh, brandisstoddard.com. It's supported by a Patreon, which is also Brandis Stoddard. Um, I also write for tribality.com, and I am on Twitter at Brandis Stoddard. Excellent. And I am at DM Samuel on Twitter, and I blog at rpgmusings.com, and uh, I stream a game about every two weeks called D&D Brief. It is found on twitch.tv slash don't split the podcast, and we also have that turned into a podcast form instead of video form, and that is at don'tsplitthepodcast.com, and just search for D&D Brief on there, and you will find me amongst a bunch of other good awesome D&D shows. Uh, and I think this has been a fun conversation. I learned a lot about a setting I know almost nothing about. Now I know a little bit more about it. And uh, I think Brandis had a had a good time talking about economies. <laughs> I definitely did. <laughs> Excellent. Well, with that, we will say goodbye. Thank you for listening. And uh, we hope you stay tuned for the next one. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>